it, you can't put your head in the sand. You can't be an ostrich on this stuff. The best way to be prepared for this stuff is to think about it in advance. And that can be if you're a small business or a small organization. The simplest way to do that is to sit and read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever the case may be and say, what if that had happened to us? And for a, for a leader to sit down with a leadership team and just simply do a basic five-minute conversation in their quarterly, monthly staff meeting, whatever the case may be, and said, you know, this I just read this in the paper. What if it had happened to us? And then that begs a question about what I think is the key differentiator between good and great crisis response. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible, amazing guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is one of the world's leading thought leaders in the arena of reputation management. He works with massive enterprises. He works with governments. Basically, these are folks who in some way have screwed up in the eyes of the public. And then Bill Coletti comes in riding on his horse to the rescue, and he helps them put their reputation back together. Welcome to the show, Bill. Nikki, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for everything that you do. I'm looking forward to having a great conversation. Bill, me too, man. The pleasure's all mine. So, Bill, the person who listens to this show is a thought leader, an aspiring thought leader. The reason they listen to the show is because they want to live life as the best version of themselves. They want to take their business to the next level, and they want to learn from you, our guest, on how they can do that. But before they can really hear you, before the message can sink in, they need to get to know you, man. They need to get to fall in love with your story. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Bill Coletti? Uh, what a wonderful question. Well, it all starts with a fabulous set of parents, my mom and dad, Bill and Shirley, 95 and 85 respectively, and they're still alive and they live here in Austin, Texas with me. So it starts with them. Grew up, was got involved in student government in high school, and I thought it would be cool and as, a, as the student government president that we should be able to vote like the grownups vote. And so I went down to our elections office and talked to them and said, hey, we want to get some voting machines here and so that students can learn, you know, 16 and 17 year olds can learn how to vote just like 18 year olds when we can register to vote. And so that sent me on a journey of politics. And from there, I started running political campaigns and really okay. involved in, in local politics. Yeah, local politics and in politics, the first part of my career, first 15 years or so, doing various levels and sizes of political campaigns, both in Florida and across the US, and then a few uh, fortunate enough to do some globally. And then took those skill sets of politics, which is basically trying to create crises for your other side, for the other side, or <laughs> you careening from crisis to crisis on our side. Um, and the folks with with one of fewer crisis typically wins. And so took those skill sets and applied it to corporations. And then for the past 17 years or so, have been doing 
crisis communications and reputation management in a corporate context, working with with uh, amazing companies that are unfortunately caught in the crosshairs of public expectation and their actions. And we've built out a, a really unique process of strategies and wisdom to help organizations get out of that. I did it for a long time as a, at a global PR firm, uh, then left about five years ago and went on the, my own thought leadership content creation entrepreneurial journey uh, with my firm now, which is called Kith, K-I-T-H, Kith. Wow, fantastic. What a story. I love it. So listen, I'm a, a bit of a political junkie myself. I actually got my master's degree in international politics at Georgetown University, the School of Foreign Service there. Awesome. Great school. So phen- phenomenal school, phenomenal school. I happened to be there uh, right when the Cold War was ending from 1989 to 1991. So that magnificent backdrop sweep of history happening over there has always had me be super interested. So if you don't mind, I want to ask you a few questions about the political work that you did because I'm sure. fascinated by it. Absolutely. So what got you into politics? What, what made you decide, hey, this is the direction I want to go in? So I, I grew up in a political family. My dad was mayor of our of our hometown, St. Petersburg Beach, Florida. Uh, it was before I was born, so I, I was I was the reason he got out of politics. I was born, and he said enough of that. But both my parents had in, been involved in lobbying and legislative issues, and really, it just became my hobby. I just became interested in it as a, as a as a teen, and and then you know that anecdote about I was student government president in high school and started talking to the supervisor of elections and said, let's vote like the adults vote, uh, you know, the way we would vote in student government politics or student government campaigns. Let's let's vote the same way, the same technology. And that was just a great introduction to an amazing woman at um, the supervisor of elections office. And she turned me on to some leadership in the Republican Party. And so I really got involved in politics, certainly had the bug from my family, certainly interested in it, but then got re- truly engaged with that decision of, you know, why don't the kids get to vote like the adults? So yeah, that's, no, that's sort that's of where, we, where we started. That's, that's a starting point. It's a fantastic starting point. So what kind of campaigns did you, uh, did you work on? Were you uh, mostly in local and state or did you do any national stuff? So did legislative, mostly at the start of my career doing legislative campaigns. I worked for the House Campaign Committee, so the Florida legislature. Uh, we've got a, obviously a House and a Senate in Florida. And so ran all of the legislative races for two cycles for the Florida House House Campaign Committee, so the House of Representatives. And then from that ran and did a couple statewide races in Florida and then went over overseas. So ran two statewide races in Florida successfully. I went overseas and worked in Bulgaria and then worked in Albania and in doing politics over there. Wow. And then came home and ran a U.S. Senate race um, in 2000 in Florida. Yes. So so I guess Uh, U.S. Senate race was the biggest race. Was that Bill Bill McCollum's? Absolutely. 100%. Well done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I, I remember yep. that. Congressman McCollum, or Attorney General McCollum, he then ultimately wanted to become Attorney General of Florida. Um, just a terrific, terrific man and, and was a, a, a tough year for us, but yeah. uh, was a really, really proud of the race we ran in 2000. So it was a good, it was a good, no, good he race. was a good man. I was actually surprised that he, that, uh, that he didn't have a better year uh, that year. I was surprised he didn't get the result, but yeah, it was a tough year in many, many ways. I think the uh, the Republican Party lost five seats that year in the Senate. Exactly. And gained one. So <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a good year for them, that's for sure. Wow. So what was it like to, to work overseas in places like Bulgaria and Albania where people were experiencing democracy perhaps even for the first time? Ton of passion, uh, huge, huge passion. And the, the fault lines between 
you know, small D Democrats and, and reformed socialist communists, you know, people didn't really have the experience and the understanding, understanding of, of what those uh, fault lines were. They kind of the emerging democracy or the emerging Democrats, again, people that were more, more, more focused on democracy as opposed to a state system were, were just naive and raw and they just wanted something different because what they had wasn't working for them and hadn't worked for their families. And so it was, it was incredibly refreshing that people were just raw and demanding change. And it was very dynamic. It was also great because you got to experiment with, you know, different tactics in political campaigns. You know, it's all about contact and telling your story, but they were really open to messaging and storytelling. Um, cause previously, cause you run as a party, you run as a slate in there. And so you have a lot of people on a ballot across the country. Uh, it's all saying kind of the same thing. And so from a messaging standpoint, it's, uh, it's, it's a little different than our adages here of all politics is local, uh, much more national dynamics run campaigns in, in Europe, particularly in Europe than U S where we, it's, it's not, it, it happens, but it's not all the time that politics gets nationalized. It's really primarily local. I think we're going to be in a national election uh, in soon. 2020 here in the United States. Yeah. And, and, and I think we'll, it will be a nationalized election. It will be very much 100%. about Trump, but in Europe, but in Europe that it, it, it in those days, it was um, all about just, do you want change or do you want status quo? And then if you were the party of change, you, you kind of did, did pretty well until they didn't have the infrastructure to succeed. So the, the big difference is, is, is the fault lines are a lot more clear and the willingness to do politics in a, in a national way with really strong, compelling messaging was very refreshing. And I, I really, I love the experience both in Albania and in Bulgaria. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Here's one thing that just uh, blows me away around speaking to folks who have an understanding of politics and messaging, because uh, you know a, a big part of thought leadership is around messaging. So I think it's 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 yeah. a fascinating case study. I interviewed Scott Adams, who became famous for the Dilbert cartoon strip, on this podcast a while ago. If you've never had a chance to listen to that particular episode, I highly recommend that you do. It's episode number 93. Scott talked about his book called Winning Bigly, which is all about the art of persuasion as he observed Donald Trump doing it in the uh, run-up to 2015, 2016 in the campaign. And he, he made some incredible points, which I thought were very salient, and it was, it, was, it was really, really powerfully done. And since there is a national campaign coming up, and since you have had this background as a campaign manager and a messaging expert, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how how Donald Trump is doing his his messaging, because this guy's nobody's fool, right? He's one of the master persuaders of our time. And he's definitely had a number of, I don't want to call them scandals because they're not really scandals, but certainly media-created events that seem to come up from time to time. Yet his opponents seem to do him one better every chance they get. And they, they, they come up with, with media events of their own that are actually closer to some scandals. And so he seems to be one step ahead of them or, or, or one step behind him and having one less scandal. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you think uh, this says about the upcoming 2020 election? Yeah. So I grew up from the very beginning as a partisan Republican. I, I felt that free market principles and an understanding and some some social values that were articulated by the Republican Party as I was growing up were critically important. 
And so I'm in the anti-Trump camp. And, and, I, and I just, what I've learned and what, the way I've sort of formed that, and I'm happy, and I'll, I'll share with you, because I do think some of the things you said are absolutely true about his capacity to message and the other side's capacity to not message. Um, you know, so I believe in politics. There's generally in the United States, we have a continuum um, from left to right. You can sort of map yourself somewhere on that line over time. You know, you have some people are a little bit left of center, right of center, far extremes, whatever the case may be. I think we're in a we're in a time now where everybody's moving out to the edges, moving out farther left, farther right to those extremes. Yeah, it's, it's a little that scary, is, unfortunately. That, that part it is it. scary. And for me, I've personally, in my sort of philosophy and the way the lens I look through politics is, is that there's a new axis off of that line. So if you're imagining a, a straight line with a center and a left and a right, I think there's a new axis that comes off of it at 90 degrees that is about grace. And it is about how we treat one another and how we how we do our politics in in a more humane, thoughtful and civil way. And so while I think ideology is still important to me, left, right, center, for me, there's a new axis on it. So we now have an X, Y graph, if you will, about grace. And I just think that. We need more of that. And I heard a quote this morning that, that Senator McCain from Arizona, his wife, just said, "This the Republican Party today is not the Republican Party that John and I grew up in. And and, and Senator McCain returning from Vietnam, you know, a, a good conservative Republican by anybody's measure, kind of at the extreme on some of that, but an abundantly decent person. The same for the Bush family, I think, are great, decent people. Mitt Romney, great, decent person. Um, I think that that so that that discourse, that new axis is really sort of shaping our politics in the United States. I think to your point about a messaging, you know, I think I don't subscribe that President Trump is sort of this, you know, crazy like a fox that he's playing three dimensional chess and everybody's playing checkers. I think he's a pretty, you know, visceral react in the moment kind of guy. And that kind of works out for him pretty well. But I don't think there's a grand thought full strategy. I think that he makes a move and everybody around him reacts to the move. And I guess it's working for him. You know, there's a a better than not chance he's going to get reelected. But I think that while my 401k is growing and my investments are doing great and I'm super happy about the stock market, I just, I I worry about about our market too, buddy. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's no doubt, and I and I'm sure I give some of his deregulatory, you know, deregulatory policies credit for that. But for me, I I I, I don't want to sound naive, but you know, it's it's not just about my personal wealth and personal success. I think there is a corrosiveness that's that's toxic, and I don't like it. Well, uh, and so I, 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 you know, I don't disagree with you, and and, and this isn't going to be a primarily a talk about politics, but but because it's a fascinating thing, and you had the background, I want to ask you a few questions around it. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, I think the corrosiveness of the politics can mostly be laid at the feet of the left, especially recently. They tend to go after the good, decent men, the McCain's and the Romneys, and called them all kinds of vicious, nasty names in the 2008-2012 campaigns. I mean, the uh, Obama campaign ran some ads in 2008 basically saying that McCain is corrupt and he took money from Peter King, which they very well knew was untrue. And they ran some ads about Mitt Romney saying that he was a, a, a rapacious capitalist who didn't care that people under his watch died. And they knew that was untrue. And they did it because they thought it would help him win elections. And every two seconds, they scream racist, 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 whenever they don't have another argument. Now, I'm from the Middle East. I'm an actual victim of racism. You know, I'm a Christian from 
from the Middle East. I'm from Iran. When I was a young uh, young boy, you know, some folks threw a Molotov cocktail through our window with a note on it that said, die mm. Christian mm. scum. Bill, the only reason you and I are talking, because it didn't explode. Know what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. So I had people beat me up, rip the cross off my neck. I actually know what real racism is, and I have very little tolerance for these people who make false claims of racism. In fact, I think that it's, itself is a form of racism. And, and I have no time for people on the left of the spectrum who say that Donald Trump and people like him are the problem. They are the problem. They started this. Donald Trump is a reaction to good men like John McCain and Mitt Romney, although I got to be honest with you, I'm not so crazy about how Romney's showing up lately, but that's a different story Mm -hmm. for another time. Different topic, different topic. Different topic for another time. You know, a guy helped you become elected senator, don't bite at his ankles. Not very nice, right? (laughs) Not very nice. So, but at the time, good, decent man. And these guys attacked them, destroyed them. So they're they're like seriously saying they're they're surprised that's that the right would come up with someone like Donald Trump, who is better at it at their game than they are. <laughs> I mean, sorry. You you wanted good, decent men on our side? you know, do politics civilly. I can't imagine John F. Kennedy or, uh, well, maybe Lyndon Johnson, but I, s- I certainly can't imagine John <laughs> F. Kennedy or or, uh, or or Jimmy Carter or Hubert Humphrey behaving the way the modern Democratic Party is behaving and the modern left is behaving. And, you know, I'm from Canada and I'm embarrassed by our prime minister, Justin Trudeau. And hopefully by the time this episode comes out, he's going to have been voted out of office. Because the guy's the biggest hypocrite in the world. He calls everybody and their brother a racist. And then it turns out he's been in blackface at least three times that we know of. Those are my thoughts on on the political order and the corrosiveness of it. The left, to me, takes 98% of the blame. And I'll give maybe 2% of it to us for reacting to it. So, you know, I, I think there's tons of blame to go around on all sides. And we can we can argue 98, you know, 98 versus 2 or, or whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> No, but and and you know we can debate that. But but I, I guess I'd turn the question back to you: Is that if you had a client or someone that you were coaching, and the conversation was, "Man, Nikki, everybody's against me at work. They treat me like crap. I don't get the promotion that I deserve. I don't, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It's everybody. It's everybody else's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my my oh, assistant's I, I, fault. I'd it's everybody else's mirror. fault." I'd hold the mirror up to their yeah, face. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you are coaching for success, and now we're coaching the United States for success, <laughs> does blame matter? Does it matter where it came from, or does it matter that we're here and some of us have to do something different? And well, so that so I, I not, try I'm to not, think I'm it not, in that human con- interaction. I'm not disagreeing with you. I actually. Um, before she ran into politics, I, I, I was quite a fan of, uh, of Marianne Williamson, and I would say she's got a good heart. I interviewed Jack Canfield a couple weeks ago, um, mm. and Jack said on my show that he's actually donating money to Marianne Williamson. And I said to him, you know what? Some of her policies are not my policies, you know, because like you, I tend <laughs> to be a capitalist and, you know, right of center and all that stuff, especially on economics and being from the Middle East and a Christian, I'm kind of glad that ISIS has been beaten. <laughs> you know, yeah, those yeah, are good yeah. things from my perspective. But I would love to see someone who wants to put love at the center of our national discourse be the the standard bearer for a major political party. And I think she yeah. and Donald yeah. Trump would have a hell of a campaign to run. And I got a feeling it would be it would be different from, for example, Trump running against Elizabeth Warren or, or Joe Biden. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think she's going to get that no, shot. No, she's not going to get the nomination. Um, yeah. I, I actually think Elizabeth Warren's probably going to get the nomination, which is the left's answer to Donald Trump. So there you go. <laughs> I think I think that's certainly what it feels like right now. But you know, we're a year you're a year we're plus a year away, sure. and so sure. the world can change. The world can change. Anyways, we digress. It was fun to speak Good stuff, politics though. with you. Good stuff. Let's let's transition into business. So sounds great. So Bill, there's a lot of corporations that face hits on their reputation. And Mm -hmm. if they're not prepared, if they haven't thought that this could happen, I think in this day and age, you know, that's not smart. And one of the questions that comes to my mind is how does something like pre-planning, you know, corporate crisis management impact the way a company handles a hit to their reputation? Yeah. So, it's a, it's a terrific question, and I and I do believe that that reputation can be managed. And and the book I wrote talks a little bit of, talks a lot about that. It's there's a you can actually do it. It's, it's generally perceived to be impossible to do, but I think organizations. Tell and companies me about your book. My God, I need to get a copy of your book. Yeah, let me. But I, I yeah. So I'll come back to that. But I but I want to I want to answer your specific question. Is that sure. so? It's manageable. I just like HR is manageable, or janitorial services, or litigation, whatever is. I think every, you know, I think organizations that are do well have processes and systems for management, and so I think that's their thought leadership. There's a system and process that you go through on thought leadership. I think in its simplest, simplest form, is 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 that exactly what you just said, and people to recognize that. It you can't put your head in the sand. You can't be an ostrich on this stuff. The best way to be prepared for this stuff is to think about it in advance. And that can be if you're a small business or a small organization. The simplest way to do that is to sit and read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever the case may be and say, what if that had happened to us? And for a, for a leader to sit down with a leadership team and to just simply do a basic five-minute conversation in their quarterly, monthly staff meeting, whatever the case may be, and said, you know, this I just read this in the paper. What if it had happened to us? And then that begs a question about what I think is the key differentiator between good and great crisis response. Hmm. Speed, speed is the key differentiator. So your point was about readiness and preparedness, and there's I've got tons of thoughts about that. But but fundamentally, I've broken down, I've, you know, having done some range of crisis for 25 years, is that it's fundamentally about speed. And it's not speed in its own right. It's it's about the right speed. Speed is made up of two things, in my opinion. It's made up about mission and values. And so you take your mission and values and understand of what you stand for, because that's your that's that's your core DNA that allows you to make fast decisions and then chain of command. Who are the people and the and the leaders, formally and informally, that need to be within your organization to make a decision? So you take mission and values marry it up with chain of command, that creates speed. The only way to exercise all of those is have to do some sort of crisis forethought. And that can be deep risk planning and really thinking about the risks that impact your business. It can be crisis communications tactics and strategies. I think the simplest thing, and for the folks that that, that listen to you and, and want a thought leadership idea, is leadership teams should pull out the newspaper every now and then and say, if that had happened to us, what would we do? That's the best, simplest what exercise that organizations question. can have. And so, so, and it's not hard, but it's, it's not done often enough. So maybe it is harder than I think it is.
What a great question. What would we do if that happened to us? It's actually pretty brilliant. So about a year ago or so, a little less than a year ago, the uh, high school that my son attends here in Toronto had a crisis on their hands. Some members of the football team really roughhoused uh, another member of the team, and they did something illegal. I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to verbalize sure. it on the air because I'm not into sensationalizing. But they hurt another kid. Let's just say that was the bottom line. A video of this was taken, which is absolutely insane to me, and this video was uh, shared across social media. The police got involved. And this became a North America-wide crisis. And our school handled it well in some ways and not so well in some ways. Uh, And what they did well is, you know, the principal at the time, he he fell on his sword and took care of the young man who was hurt first and foremost. And for that, I I honor that man because it took a lot of guts to do that. Uh, What they didn't handle well is they basically caved in to all the negativity that was coming in from the media. And they did not want to take a stand in any way for themselves and all the things that the school did right. And I want to bring this up as an example to you. If you were advising the school, how would you have done it? Would you have done the same things? Would you have done it differently? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's it's one of the things that I've learned is that there's lots of commentators that'll that'll sort of armchair quarterback a particular situation. And I've learned a long time ago is that I don't know exactly the dynamics of what's going on there. I don't know what the board of trustees are whispering to the principal or the the senior administrator that's there. You know, I think that for me, it comes down to what I what I articulated before. It comes down to mission and values. What do you stand for and who are the stakeholders that matter most? All right. Who really matters most when you make these decisions? And if who matters most are that particular family and that kids, family, because they're major donors, make decisions that way. If it's the public and you're worried about, you know, losing your accreditation or whatever the, you know, private or public school, whatever the context would be. So for me, the way as an observer of process is that when people screw up is they screw up around mission and values. They don't know what they stand for and they just make it up as they go along. So beating up a kid, not a good thing. You know, that's not good. And, and and I think that, you know, there has to be consequences for behavior and organizations need to do that. I think that the general public, what the public really wants is they want to know, we get it. We're on top of this. It's a serious situation and we're going to resolve this situation. I think once you, and that goes back to speed, but once you do that at the outset, then really focus on just talking to those that matter most is you don't need to do a press release. You don't need to do a broadcast. Focus on you, your family, other families, and, the, and, and tell them what's going on. That's what organizations need to focus on. Everybody kind of gets too, too focused on the broadcast and they forget about the narrow cast. And most crises, you need, obviously, the public's involved in the way you described it. It was a huge deal in North America. And I'm familiar with what the, of the case you're talking about. But this is you know, no offense to you and you won't be offended by this. You're just a small little school in Canada that's doing some really nice things for some good kids. Let's just remember that we do not need to be the cause celeb, you know, for bullying in Canada. Let's just stick to our knitting and focus on the people that matter most. And that goes back to mission and values. If your school was wanting to be cutting edge thought leader globally about the amazing things you're doing, the response is a little bit differently. But if you're just a great school in a community that's serving, serving that local community, 
you know, you don't need to make this matter worse. Um, so I can't really decide. I don't know if they did the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm going to assume they were thoughtful and did the right thing for the right reason, as opposed to overreacting to, to some outside stimuli. Well, my own a lot of thinking, word salad there. I hope that was helpful. No, it was very helpful. It, it was very good, actually. Uh, you, 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 you thought about it in a critical way, and you, you, you brought the lens of your methodology and thought leadership to it. So for that, I'm grateful. My own feeling as a parent was they did they did it about seventy five percent right, and they did it about twenty five percent wrong. Mm-hmm. So they nipped the problem in the bud. You know, they expelled the kids mm-hmm. involved. They shut down the program for a bit. I thought all of that was mm-hmm. important. They uh, brought into play uh, some outside folks to really help them address the issue of of bullying and so forth. What I didn't Mm -hmm. like was that they didn't stand up for the school and what the school's mission was as strongly as they could have. They just didn't want – they wanted this to go away. They were like hunkering down until it was done was kind of their attitude. And and they threw the principal and the president of the school under the bus. And those two men stood up for that – that boy who was hurt, and uh, they they, uh, they 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 fell on their sword for that kid. So that kid would not be as badly affected by it as he could have been, because the media were a mm. bunch of savage wolves that that were going after kids. I mean, my kid, who at the time was twelve, was being yeah. approached by folks from the media offering him money for a copy of that video. That was disgusting, yeah. in my view. Totally, and. and um, uh, honestly, I wish we had laws that would allow us to go after and prosecute members of the media that did that, but we don't. <laughs> you know. Well, I, just and I just I, I totally let me I, I validate what you're saying is that so I was in the in the process of running a relatively high profile crisis, somewhat similar to what you're describing, down here in the states, and NBC was all over it and wanted to find me and I didn't want to I didn't want to talk to him because we didn't know what we were going to do we were not being fast because we didn't really know the facts set yet so we ultimately did make a message but they sent a producer in the afternoon on a school day knocked on the door and scared the bejesus out of my daughter and said hey we're looking for your dad out there with a guy with a camera and a microphone saying we're looking for your dad and I'm the spokesperson for these folks and and so a little bit of a tangent, but I get what you mean about the impact on your son and the impact on kids is that, you know, the, the civilians, the civilians should be protected. You know, this is, we should, you know, let's do what you want to do relative to the combatants, but you know, the civilians should, should be protected. Be prote- Honestly, man, I wish we lived in an Indian time where you could punch that guy in the mouth and get away with it, <laughs> you know, because not, 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 not that I'm a favor of violence or anything, but like approaching a kid like that, that's offside. That's completely it's, it's totally scary. Yeah, and, and not good. Not good. Completely offside. Completely offside. I'm enjoying this. This is very powerful. So, Bill, let's talk about a very famous case that I think mm-hmm. everyone listening to this podcast will know about, and that's the Exxon Valdez um, sure. running aground, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That appears to have been a case study in a major company, at least initially, not doing it right. So Correct. can we take a look at that and see what they did wrong and what what they could have done better? And what are the lessons yeah. that can apply to, you know, the kinds of folks that listen to my show, which let's face it, are usually not enterprise level people, but tend to be entrepreneurs and thought leaders and potential thought leaders? Yeah, you know, you're right. It, it is. Um, it's luster as a great case study, frankly, is fading because because, you know, in 1989, when that went down, 
it was a completely different social media, internet world and things like that. You know, the images that we have that, that we've now seen over time are really, really graphic, but we didn't see them posted immediately in real time. It took a while to get news crews up there and, and whatnot with, uh, with Exxon Valdez. So yes, it's a case study. They did handle it very, very poorly at the outset. They didn't respond in sort of a smart way, long litigation trail, long political consequences of that over time. So you're you're absolutely correct. They handled it poorly at the outset. But what I do recall of that, one of the upsides of that is that folks that, you know, service providers, so Dawn dish detergent, by the way, just the, the, the soap that you use to clean your dishes, Dawn, um, they did amazing work and they got some reputational, huge reputational benefit because that Dawn dish detergent really impacted seabirds and sea otters and a lot of the mammals uh, that were out there because it cleaned off a lot of the oil that was there. But their impact, but the impact on um, Exxon has been long, long standing. And the way I measure that impact is two things. When you, what the, the goal post crisis is that you want to get the benefit of the doubt and you want people to be able to say, Hey, I didn't know that was, that's not the company I know. That's not the company I think. Unfortunately, Exxon had had a track record of sort of being of a, being a polluter and being really sort of not particularly a good corporate citizen. So they didn't get the benefit of the doubt because people absolutely believed that, okay, yeah, I see it. They did it. Sounds like they've got a track record. And so they were very much punished by that. But the goal in crisis response is, is to have a, or the perfect state in crisis response is to have the benefit of the doubt. And then you want to maintain your license to operate because Exxon has to grow. Exxon has to develop new oil fields and has to develop new processes. Now everybody is going to ask them extra more difficult questions. What are your environmental procedures? What are your practices? What are your procedures? And so while measuring Exxon Valdez as a case study, different world because of social media, the same thing with Tylenol. Everybody regards what Johnson & Johnson did with Tylenol earlier in the 80s was equally uh, highly regarded. I think it was, you know, they did a good job. I think Exxon Valdez did a bad job. For me, the thing that you need to learn is what happened to their license to operate. It, it got taken away for a certain extent. And then what about their ability to get the benefit of the doubt? They still don't get the benefit of the doubt. And you generally have a negative view of, of Exxon to, today and from an, from an incident that happened in the late 80s. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's uh, frankly uh, uh, something that's, that's hurt them and that's hurt their shareholders. And people think, oh, it's a big, bad corporation. So what if they get hurt a little bit? But there's a lot of people that rely on that big, bad corporation for their livelihood. There's sure. a lot of people that are Absolutely. invested in that big, bad corporation. And that helps them retire and take care of their families. And uh, yeah. for that, I think, you know, the president of Exxon at the time, I forget his name. I think his last name was Rawls. He, he messed up. That, 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 guy should have, yeah. that guy should have been forced to, to have uh, a greater level of consequence leveled at him for not, not just for the environmental damage that he caused, which was, you know, done under his watch, but for how he didn't handle this well enough to allow the corporation to uh, recover from it, really, and, and continue yeah. to serve all the people that depend on it. Yeah, 
No, it's absolutely true. And then, and the, you know, more recently is BP and the Deepwater, Deepwater Horizon, Horizon here in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, Gulf, bad, bad, bad uh, CEO that oh, it's one of the quotes that I use a lot in my, my keynote is that, you know, he would much rather be sailing in the Thames River or he'd like to get his life back. Two quotes that he made. You know, I think the, the, the fishermen would probably want that. I, I, I was thinking, yeah. Are you an idiot, man? How could you say such a thing? You should have been down there until the thing was done and said, oh, absolutely. I, I feel responsible. I'm going to continue to, to, to be here to make sure that everyone who's affected by this is made whole again. That's what he should have done. Instead, he sounded like an out-of-touch idiot. Yep. And I think, I think humanity and empathy is one of the key traits of those that get crisis in a, you know, good, good versus great is that they are the organizations that do exactly what you just said. So Nick, if I did something to you and damaged something or whatever at your home or your business or had some sort of impact on you, my humanity would say, man, I'm terribly sorry about that. Is there something I can do to help? And that could be financial help. It could be rebuild a brick wall. It could be whatever that impact was. Can I do something to help? Too often, corporations don't think at that level and measure of humanity. And I would do everything I could within my powers to help. And that's exactly what you're saying that BP, the BP guy should do. That's exactly what he should have done. The same I would have done for you if I had impacted, you know, if I broke something at your house, for example. Yeah, exactly. We should do it the same way. Yeah, the Tylenol case is interesting because the leaders of the company came across as, as caring. Yes. One of my mentors, the man who's been back as a guest most often on my show, his name's Mark Von Muser. He has a very powerful quote. He said, your biggest competitive advantage in business is how much you care about your fellow man and woman and how willing you are to let them feel that. Absolutely. I love it. I know, right? It's powerful, powerful stuff. Okay, it so- It is powerful. It is powerful. But, but you got to be brave. That, that's, that's easier said than done. You know, pretty difficult to pull that off sometimes. You know what? It is pretty difficult to pull that off sometimes. But I think today's customer demands it, you know, because- Absolutely. People- are hungering for authenticity. People are hungering for somebody who cares, somebody who can see them, somebody who can help them deal with the problems that are most affecting them in life. They haven't got time for a slick, fuller brush type salesman or saleswoman anymore. Wouldn't you agree with that, Bill? Absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. And, and that goes back to the politics conversation we were having and that axis that I think is so important. But it's there. And I think companies are going to get rewarded for it over the long term. I, I think companies that, that understand that they've got a greater purpose, it's the stuff that you service of other people. That's the key differentiator and authenticity. It's a, it's a worn out word, but that's good content. Good thought leadership works. If it's kind of authentic and you don't have to fake it, that you're some sort of expert in everything, just be really good at what you do. And that's what most people expect for corporations. They really do. Uh, that's what most people expect from people, honestly. And corporations are uh, a legal fiction that represents people. Absolutely. So I've never met President Trump, but I, I had the privilege of interviewing George Ross, who was his uh, his friend on The Apprentice. And um, yeah. George said to me, hey, uh, 
Nikki, you know, the Donald Trump that you see out in public and the Donald Trump that you see in, in private are, are, are different people. He has a persona that he puts on out there, and he's a little bit larger than life, and he absolutely believes in in fighting back. But privately, he's a very gracious man. And, uh, he, he, you know, uh, I've heard that not just from him, but from a number of other people who've done business with him before he he became president, because there's no question he's, he's a little bit brash, and some of the things yeah. that he says are not my style, but... Uh, you know, when I hear from people who know him, who really have no no reason to say anything good or bad about him, but they say, hey, I know this guy privately, uh, makes me feel not as bad about some of the things he does. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know why we don't see it in the real world. If, it, if that's the, I've heard that too. So yeah. why can't we see it? Why can't we see it? You know, you know Bill, that's a good conversation for another podcast interview. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Sounds listen, great. Goes to authenticity. Goes yeah. to authenticity. So listen, you got to send me a copy of your book. I got to read it and we got to have you it. back. Deal? Absolutely. Happy to do it. Nikki, this has been an awesome conversation. No. All right. So listen, we like to wrap up each and every one of our episodes by asking you as our expert guest, what are your top three pieces of advice or what we call expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on in their life for their business. What say you, my friend? Awesome. Love it. Wake up earlier in the morning. So I get up at 530 every morning, enjoy a cup of coffee, sit and reflect, don't grab my phone and just think about the things I'm grateful for and, and try to motivate good intention in my life. So I think that's critical element number one. If you're an organization that has risk and, and stop and ask yourself, what if this had happened to me? What would I do about it? Go through that mental exercise and think about how you can manage a situation like that. And then it, whether it's applicable to you or applicable to one of your clients, um, it really will make you better. Uh, and then the third thing is we all need to read more and just be curious. And so I think people get sort of myopic and focused on their content, their, their business, their industry, but I think being curious. So wake up early, ask yourself what if, and, and be curious. Those are three awesome expert action steps. And thank you for laying them out so succinctly. So, Bill, is there anything you want the folks to know about uh, on how to connect with you or anything in particular, like your new book that you want them to find out about? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So kith.co is our corporate website. Easy to find everything there. Um, I'm real active on LinkedIn. I try to write, write some thought leadership once a week about uh, reputation management crisis uh, and just sort of the mindset of great communicators. Then also pretty active on Twitter uh, as well. And it's just B-C-O-L-E-T-T-I. I uh, wrote a book called uh, called Critical Moments. It's the new mindset of reputation management and get it on Amazon. And so you can also check that out off of our website um, that's there. But just love sort of sharing. And, you know, my my role is to be in service. My, my role is to try to lead and challenge the clients that we work with. So I love sharing it. Bill, you're sending me a copy of the book. I'm reading it. We're having you back. Roger that. You're going to be an encore. Uh, we'll continue our, our, uh, our political discussion and our business discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, listener, you can tell Bill Coletti's the real deal. He's an absolute thought leader in the area of reputation management. He's got the chops. He's done it in, in the world of politics. He's done it in the world of business. He continues to do it. He lives and breathes it. So make sure that you go to the show notes, you pick up a copy of his book, you check out his social media and other platforms. We're going to put all that in the show notes. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Nikki, this is fabulous. I love Bill. Clearly he's the real deal. And I listen to this show because I want to be inspired by people like Bill. Can I be like Bill? 
And maybe you're having some doubts. Maybe you're thinking, no, I can't do it. I don't have what he's got. I haven't got his ability to be so articulate. I haven't got his ability or experience in working in in my particular field for this amount of time. And here's my answer to that. And I know Bill's going to back me up. Of course you can. You are a child of the living God, and you were put here on this earth to live life as the best version of yourself. You have a purpose, a mighty purpose that you deserve to uncover and to live to the best of your ability. And here is how we can help you. Go to our website, ecircleacademy.com. Right smack dab in the middle of the page, there's a button that says, watch free webinar masterclass. Watch that webinar. In that webinar masterclass, we're going to go deeply into five key shifts that we have observed all of our clients make in the work that we've done with them and all the great mentors we've learned from that have helped them grow their practice, grow their business, make a bigger impact, make more money, feel like they're living their life of purpose, feel like they're fulfilling what they're supposed to be fulfilling. And once you've watched that, if you're so inclined Click on the button right above it, which says book a free success call and do that book a free success call. Jump on the phone with me or a member of my team. Let's map out a blueprint, a plan for you on how you can take your practice, your thought leadership to the next level. And the cost for both of these is absolutely free. So make sure you take advantage of this. Bill, once again, man, thank you for honoring us with being on the show. It was really a pleasure to, to sit here and learn from you. Well, Nikki, I think you you deserve the thanks. You've done, you do great stuff in sharing amazing ideas, your content, your ideas. I think people really value from us, so I hope I helped in a small way. So thank you for that. Oh, brother, you helped in a big way. God bless your heart. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Bill Coletti, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, look up the show notes, engage with his content, buy a copy of his book, And in order to jump on a phone call with me or watch the webinar masterclass, go to ecircleacademy.com. Until next time, goodbye.